It's time for class. Civics just doesn't begin and end on election day. This is Sunday Civics, the home for the civically engaged with political strategist L. Joy Williams on Sirius XM's Urban View. Welcome back to Sunday Civics. This is L. Joy Williams, your civics teacher and neighborhood political strategist. And this morning, I'm gonna I'm gonna take a different view. Maybe I'll take Amtrak across country. I've done that before. If you haven't, you should do that. It's very beautiful and to see other parts of the country through a train window as you would by. And, you know, I've taken Amtrak to the south, I've taken Amtrak further up north from where I am in New York. But my favorite thing to do, uh, my favorite trip to make is to the western part of the country. And so I thought, let's take a trip. Let's go to the Pacific Northwest. Let's, let's go to the western part of the country and get a different view than my urban, northern-focused, big metropolitan sort of area. And I want to bring a strategist, a consultant, an activist, an advocate to the front of the classroom that, that has that perspective, where we can have a dialogue about some of our shared values, but how it can be applied in different ways in different areas, uh, particularly here in the United States. So joining us at the front of the class is Kathleen Stewart, who is the founder and CEO of the Stewart Collective, which is a woman-owned and run communication firm that supports forward-looking organizations and leaders and is based in Portland, Oregon. I have not been to Portland yet. I have got to, I've got to make it and explore. Uh, but she works every day to win campaigns, to pass high-profile legislation, and to influence public opinion. And she has a passion for storytelling, political storytelling, and we're going to talk about that, among other things. She's been a political staffer like myself, and so I'm so glad that her team reached out to introduce us. Kathleen, welcome to the front of the class. Oh my gosh, the front of the class, the best. Thank you for having me here. And as I, I loved your last podcast, and as I joked when I jumped on, I'm now eagerly awaiting your book. So I'm like putting on the front. <laughs> that's that's you. No, no pressure. Everybody now, like it's out in the world now because I'm talking about it. And so now I'm starting to feel the pressure of like, you know, people are like, are, are you writing this weekend? Are you, <laughs> you know, everybody asking. So what maybe, maybe it's like, really. Yeah. Well, I, I'm just like such a fan and so grateful to be connected way across the country. And if you ever want to come out here to, to Portland, we would be very happily happy to host and, and show you around. So no problem. So it is your first time on the show here on Sunday Civics, hopefully not your last. But as I mentioned to your team and as the audience knows, since it's your first time, we want to hear your powerful story of you telling us the story of your first civic action. Yeah. You know, I, I kind of fun with this thinking through like, what is my first, you know, what was my first civil, civic action? And my, I grew up in a pretty, a pretty politically active household. My parents were in their union. They were pretty active. And my dad helped on the bargaining team for their, to increase pay for workers in their union. So that was the first thing that came to mind. I thought, you know, that's not my civic action. I kind of got to you know, go along with my parents on that one. And, and I learned a lot. But like, what was my first moment? And since we're here in the front of class, I was saying the first thing that came to mind next was this um, an example in high school 
where I had started a local a, a school paper and we were I grew up in Alaska in a little town called in Alaska called Palmer, Alaska. And the the mascot for our high school was the moose. So we were the mighty moose. And in middle school, my friends in Oregon always tease me now. We were the mighty mini moose. <laughs> People in New York are gonna go with the hell. Who is this person? Um so we were anyway, it was the moose. So we we it was the blueprint. It was the name of the it was the blue blue was the color of the school so blueprint was the paper and there was rumors in the so we've been writing this paper and then there was rumors in the town that there was going to be a walmart moving in and you know we all know what happens when a walmart moves into town right levels a bunch of local businesses and it really changed the landscape of a small town so i you know probably talk about civic action later you know just direct action i wrote a satire saying like walmart's moving into town they're going to be hiring high schoolers for ten dollars an hour and they'll be sponsoring our our games and they'll take over the football steam it was all like satire kind of taking it one step further like now what happens when walmart takes over and we flyered the school with them and it was like a blueprint bulletin and it riled up the whole school and started this whole conversation in town about what would it be like if a walmart moved into town and I remember like, you know, just flyering and feeling like I was doing something direct. And the Walmart never did move into town. I don't know that that necessarily stopped it. But it was my first kind of moment of like t- direct action and doing something that I was passionate about, right? Like raising the alarm about this big retailer moving in. So basically, you've been using words and telling stories for a long time, <laughs> even before <laughs> you- I guess so. Yeah. When you put it that way, good. Yeah, fair, fair point. It's probably in my DNA at this point. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, I want to talk to you about a lot of things, but using storytelling particularly, which we believe in here in Sunday Civics, is the reason why one of my first questions is to tell us the story of how you first took action, took direct action, and were involved in anything. Because particularly from, you know, African-American culture, from uh, Native cultures, uh, a lot of ethnic cultures, telling a story is important not only for your history as a people, as a nation. You know, you're in, in the United States. We tell a story, often a manufactured story, of how this country was created, right? So we know just as human beings, telling stories and making sure that they are compelling and interesting and you know, people can identify and connect with them, moves a lot of things. And we're seeing that play out even in our politics and everyday life now. So I'd love to hear from you about the power of storytelling, particularly from a communication standpoint, particularly from the standpoint of our political and economic conversations. How important is a story to that work? Yeah, yeah. So well said. And and I think the stories that we tell are, like you said, absolutely painted and described and built from our perspective or our lived experiences. And I just don't want to skip over into going, hey, you know, here's how, you know, the elements of storytelling in local politics without acknowledging that the that what you said is so powerful, that who writes the story and who gets to be part of writing that story and who gets to be at the center of that story is really crucial to America moving forward and to what's going to happen next and who gets to decide what the paintbrush is that we use to paint that story 
And that's one of the things that we've been really focused on, you know, me personally in my work, but also you know, with our clients and the work we do here is really harnessing, I would say, the power of storytelling, but also the power of coalition and long-term knowledge around what happens behind the scenes in politics and transferring that into movement building power with our clients, who a lot of whom are focused on inclusive democracy or social equity and focus on community, right, direct action and, and representing their communities, whether it be around wildfires, around economic justice, housing, et cetera. So I just want to lift that up before I dive in, I guess. Yeah, I, I think, and, you know, yet yeah, for us to pause and um, discuss that because we often compartmentalize, you know, and separate things, you know, the power of my story and my family, you know, is not connected to my politics or, you know, to my beliefs. And I'm like, it absolutely is. <laughs> like all of those things inform how you walk through the rest of the world, right? This is why when I, you know, teach people about identifying just something as simple as what box to check of the political party that you're going to align with when you register to vote for the first time, you know, you have to do that internal check with like, huh, like which which one best represents my values, my beliefs on what, but then you have to, that means that you have to know what your beliefs <laughs> like and things are wow. and what informs that is, you know, your story, your family story, the connection and things like that. So I think, you know, it's important to acknowledge that and bring it to the table as you're making those decisions. Absolutely. And, you know, you worked in politics for a long time. So I think you'll probably resonate with this. Like, I read this study that was talking about they had done a focus group with with political strategists, but probably like folks like us. And they were like, they asked the group, you know, how how often did you go to Starbucks in the last week? And like everyone was like, well, like how <laughs> how many of you listen to NPR on your way here? And they all like raised their hand. And, you know, and then they had a couple of other questions and they said, you know, most Americans do those things almost never. You know, the 90 90 percent of the folks that are in this room. And they were just talking about how like siloed even like political consultants can get. And even, you know, that and then there, you know, we talked a lot about in our firm about this like hardest glass ceiling for women working in politics and especially BIPOC women. It's like, you know, a lot of the big contracts or the big consulting work goes to men and white men. And so you've got not only an eco chamber around the kind of NPR Starbucks world that I'm kind of joking about here. And you've got an ecosystem that looks, it's very homogenous. And so how do you change that decision-making table around who writes the ads, who writes the stories, who gets to be part of that team? And we're not there yet. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Well, you have a particular perspective of storytelling and the, the different types, particularly yeah. as it pertains to political storytelling. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah, absolutely. Well, I was... I was considering, you know, what makes a good story? And I had a couple of examples that kind of brought it forward. And, you know, I really narrowed it down. There's kind of three S's that came to my mind this morning. And the first one is starting with history, like, and I'll explain, I can explain a little more, but starting with the history, giving people a sense of who, where you come from, who you are, being authentic. Steering with values, we often get away from that, right? And I can talk about some examples that I've seen locally here and probably really around the country. And then staying centered on outcomes. And um, we can get so focused on what we're doing, what what the doing part is, that we forget what the outcome is for real people. And I think that's what voters, what the public are looking for 
um, in storytelling, right, is what's in it for me. And are, are we all looking for that, right? Like, what, what am I, what am I showing up here for? And, and I think it's easy to get lost and kind of think, oh, well, I'm just going to tell, tell these voters what the government's doing and, you know, I'll let them know. And people are just wondering how they're going to get by every day. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm happy to dive in. I think the history piece is, you know, people need to know, like, who you are and where you come from, whether it's people or a slate of candidates or a ballot measure, right? Like starting at the beginning is so powerful. We we often get into this place where we are like, this is where the conversation is now. You know, we're, we're bringing it to the public or we're bringing it to a community in the middle of the conversation. But folks need to understand the background, right? Where did it come from? Where did this problem start? Or if you're if you're a candidate, where did you start as a person? Who, where do you come from? Yeah. You know, one of the examples I thought of, we have a local district here south of Portland that has changed a lot. It's gent- uh, gentrifying. It's been really rural for a long time. So a lot of Portlanders are moving south to this area. And we ran, there was a candidate that was running who was just, you know, in the community, stepped up and kind of raised his hand like, I want to run. And, you know, at first, you know, you kind of think, OK, just, you know, he's a Democrat running. And what we really backed up and dug in, we dug in with him to find out, you know, where what what does he do in his free time? He was like a baseball coach. What does he what you know, where did he grow up? He grew up. He like lived in his his parents and him lived in their car. So he grew up really facing a lot of poverty. And and what does he do now? He's like really in the community talking to business owners and helping lift up economic supports for the for the local community and he's also a man of color and so we were able to really paint this picture of him as a person that's like of the community in a different way and i think just that being authentic and like starting at the beginning is so important when you talk about history another example i'm sure you have examples like this too but in 2022 you know tina kotek who was running for governor here in in oregon and one her best performing ad was a video clip of her sitting on her doorstep talking about housing tested best in the focus groups and they put millions behind that ad and then one was the top issue here in Oregon with a lot of issues around housing yeah and so I just think the authenticity really matters right now and I guess the one the last thing I'd say on that is just we have to remember the importance of repetition right just like people need to hear the same thing like six times seven times before they internalize it and I joke sometimes that if you like if the messenger is tired of saying it, it means it's finally resonating. Like if you feel like you've been repeating yourself, you're on the right track because that's what you should be doing with storytelling, especially down ballot. You know, I often joke when I'm on big campaigns, you're part of the advisement team. And, you know, even down when your volunteers are able to start reciting the candidate dumb speech <laughs> you know you can all point yourselves out in the room and you like you look at each other yeah i was born in the railroad town so <laughs> yeah you can all start like repeating it verbatim as if you can it's just like okay yes speaking of that there, there was a candidate for mayor here in the city in new york city during our last mayoral race he told the story of a childhood friend like often and you know she's going to be on the show in a couple of episodes and i have to i gotta have to tell her this story my husband was so invested in this child <laughs> that anytime he sees her now he was like i need to know what happened it's like what happened to her like I first he went from who it, why did she keep bringing this poor woman's name in it and then it was just like well what happened to her <laughs> like able to recite the story himself 
And I was like, that means her message actually got through because you were able, you, you made a connection with it because you've heard it so often. But, but that's part of telling the story, right? It's like you want people to remember that, to have that in your context. Because it's not just the funny anecdote, right? Of like, oh my God, here he goes with growing up in a railroad town, you know, or whatever again, as, you know, Joe Biden talks about being a Scranton kid, right? But then what happens, which I'm sure Kathleen, you you know, as a tactician, you know, you love for this to happen. What happened is then when an issue comes up, say you're, you know, debating, you know, a, a contract or a piece of legislation or what have you, what you have in the back of your mind is, well, you know, Joe Biden's from Scranton. So, you know, he understands, right? You have the messaging in the back of your head, right? Evaluating it, you're like, oh, all of that context, all of that history, all of that narrative stuff that you thought didn't make any sense, that you thought wasn't connected to, are they going to pick up the trash on time kind of thing? You've yeah. now put into your evaluation of a major issue because you had that in the back of your mind. That's what you, the country you want to make, right, Emily? Yes, yes, 100%. I've worked on a couple campaigns now where our goal was like, introduce this candidate as a nurse. That was the line. And we, every sentence started with, as a nurse, we would kind of jump like, well, as a nurse, we need to go knock doors. Or as a nurse, like, it was so repetitive. And we were so, I mean, nobody was irritated because like, we all love, we all love a nurse, but. It was it was it was so repetitious. And then by the you know final month of the campaign, people at the doors were saying, oh, she's a nurse. I know her. She's a nurse. And I think as storytellers or candidates or like ballot measure creators, whoever, you know, whatever you're working on, we're trying to be like a lot of different things. Like, right. We're all multifaceted humans. We want to be. But I think it's worth remembering. Like people just need to know a couple words or maybe even sometimes one word, like something like a nurse or being from Scranton that might kind of tell People paint a picture that kind of tells them what they need to know. And and that that's like a real when you get it down to one word, that's really powerful. And then I think of the celebrities that we use as what you know, Beyonce. Like we all like, oh, the Beyonce. Like you don't have to you don't have to say anymore. Right. You know? <laughs> yeah. All of all of the narratives came through within that. Now yeah. I, I wanna then turn to the the last point you make about like not confusing with you know, yes, you focus on your history, your context, or maybe the history and the context of an issue, right? So that yeah. people understand, you know, the context and history of an issue. This is the reason why we do a lot of historical perspective on Sunday Civics. So you understand how we got to the place that we are, either be it for a legislative issue, a political issue, or anything like that. But then you have to, at some point, Make the connection to how it connects to the people you're trying to get to do a thing, whether they're voting for you for an elected position, whether, you know, you're passing a ballot measure or just having an impact on the climate and the issue overall. You know, I feel, you know, using that as an example, the, the, the story that is being told about some of these books that are being banned, like mm -hmm. in school the country, the story they are telling them is that it is corrupting your child's education or it's, you know, right. And so it's made the connection, mm -hmm. albeit a distorted one and a lie. It still made the connection of this is how it affects you, your children, your family, you know, our, our, our neighborhoods and the impact it has. So they tell, even though it is a false story, 
they tell a story that makes those points that you've mentioned. It tells you the history of it. This came from wokeism. This came from this, right? It tells you the value. This is not our value. You should have a say in your childhood education. And then it tells you what happened, you know, like what's in it for you. Like, so it, it, it tells, it hits all of the points you mentioned. It does. Yeah, it really does. And, you know, I haven't, I haven't worked on that particular issue, but what strikes me about that, I'm so curious if you agree with this. I don't know that our site has hit on the right values-based message to combat that. And I say that because, you know, you'll see the like, you know, and I think they're great direct action pieces. And like, I don't mean to discount the work that's going into them, but a lot of times you'll see stuff like, you know, this is the band book library or the band book mobile and right. or you know we're still we're using their language like this is a band yep so we're here and to a vote like to us it feels like empowering like you know us like the in the eco chamber of like progressive politics but i think to voters they're going well why was that book banned like tell tell me more and we haven't gotten yet to the i don't and i haven't sat in the focus groups to know enough like what's the value proposition for keeping a book is it just knowledge access like what's the one word maybe going back to like the why, the value. And the example that I wanted to bring forward about values is the marriage equality uh, campaigns in Oregon. Anyway, we started 2004, the marriage equality message for 2004. Do you remember the early marriage equality messages before they started passing, you know, state to state? It was all about, you know, I heard someone last weekend describe it as all about hospitals, all about access to legal paperwork was all necessary and vital stuff. The way that a book not being banned is necessary and vital, the way necessary and vital sitting on a, a shelf to be consumed, you know, probably more vital is, you know, being ac- access to your loved ones in the hospital or access to, you know, the legality piece of it. But that was where that message started. But when it started to pass, you know, at least in Oregon, when we passed it in 2014, that message, state to state, was love. That was the value. It was love, love, love. This is because of love. And that's like such a powerful and potent, I think, example of values-based messaging and action. And maybe I just, I now I'm going back to that one word. It's just, it was so simple. It didn't have to be a sentence. It could just be one thing. And I, it takes some work to get there. But once you do, it's the whole, it's the whole package. Yeah. Well, we're going to take a break here. And then when we come back, I want to talk about activism in small towns. We are talking with Kathleen Stewart, founder and CEO of the Stewart Collective based in Portland, Oregon. And when we come back, we're going to talk about activism in small towns and what is different. It can also be isolating sometimes. This I know from some of my friends who do work in the Midwest, in the West, and even in the South. So we'll talk more about that when we come back here on Sunday Civics. All the wahala, all the problems, all the things that you think that you must do to start in this world. Like when the teacher, schoolboy and schoolgirl come together. Who is the teacher? I go let you know. I go let you know. Okay, welcome back to Sunday Civics. I'm L. Joy Williams here with Kathleen Stewart, who is the founder of the Stewart Collective, a woman-owned and run communication firm that supports forward-looking organizations. She's based in Portland. 
we are talking about the power of storytelling, at least we were. But now I want to talk about activism in small towns, because if you are not from a small town, if you have don't have any context or anything about what happens in small towns, your view may be from Little House on the Prairie or from what you see on TV or, you know, politicians or other folks telling you what is happening in small towns if you don't experience it yourself. And so, Kathleen, we've talked about before, you know, the perceptions of rural America and how that impacts people's view of what happens in rural America in small towns, what middle class is, what poor is, what you know, it's all relative based upon where you are, where you live, the experience and, and all of that. But what's interesting is that for activists who are in small town areas, they may not necessarily have access or resources or the same level of connection that, say, we do in a town like New York, in a big city like New York City, where you have additional resources and think. That. And so activists have to be a bit more creative in how they engage in that work. Can you talk a bit about that? Absolutely. I have so many thoughts about this, but as you were talking about how isolating like small towns can be, I wanted to lead with the, this thing that came to my head, which is that advocacy and community action in small towns can be very isolating, especially now with the polarization that we see between and progressives and conservatives. I think, you know, often I spoke, speak with folks who are living in rural towns who are doing progressive activism. And they're the first thing they say is like, I'm all alone. And it can feel really scary. And it can feel, like you said, very, it can be very isolating. There can be less support. And I want to call out that there are a lot of kind of anti-democracy actors and bigoted actions that are happening that specifically target leaders in small towns for taking a stand, say, They'll target a librarian or target a woman of color running a state agency or target, you know, you know, the experiences of folks who are doing this work can be really difficult and it's not the same for everyone. And so I just I wanted to lead with the thought that, you know, that's not just self-care, but seeking support, seeking community, building the community around your activism like it's part of your activism is really important because it, it, it is part of the continued work, right, is the community, the support very hard to continue when you're um, in these environments without the kind of community and support that you need. So I wanted to lift that up. It feels um, more important now than ever for that to be such yeah. a center. You know what it reminds me of when I travel, go to other areas that have NAACP branches and, you know, folks are asking about the work that we're doing. And then I hear about the work that they're doing and they kind of give the landscape right? They'll say something like, for instance, when I went to Iowa, the Iowa NAACP, a lot more diverse in terms of race than here in New York City, right? Because it's also just not a large Black population compared, right, compared to New York City, right? And so the, the way in which they tell stories, engage in campaigns and seek community and connection is different. Same thing mm-hmm. if you have much micro community um, it could be a community of color. It can be, you know, um, families that are uh, more rural, that are in a town that's more 
much more of a city, but you have this like rural outpost and sort of people feeling like they don't, their voices aren't heard and their issues aren't addressed because they don't have the same experiences because of their difference in terms of location or access to resources or, or things of that nature. And so you bringing up that isolation of we take for granted, those of us who are in larger, sort of more populous areas, that it's easier to find connection, right? Mm-hmm. That, oh, I can just go on Flatbush Avenue and I can find, <laughs> you know, 50 people yeah. that walk by who will agree on yeah. an issue and finding this petition. Yeah. And, and celebrating, you know, and like be of your, you know, be one of your not help signatures, right? Like it's a little bit more sort of, and, you know, and not to say that's every interaction, but you're likely to find more people because you have more diversity of thought, a larger base of people to pull from, things of that nature. Well, then if you're in another place that is more rural or small town with only 5,000 or 8,000 people who, you know, have the same shared history and story of how this town was put together and, <laughs> you know, all of that kind of stuff, trying to find the folks that you can build community with is isolating and more difficult. And that building community part is a huge part of organizing. Like that's the beginning is that you have to find, you know, a community and people to help grow your movement. And if you are in a space where you can't do that, that makes that really, you got to be creative and more difficult. And that, I guess, enter the power of the internet to be able to crisscross boundaries that you can't often travel on foot. Yeah, absolutely. And it makes storytelling that much more important and community that much more important, right? Both of those things together. You know, I'm happy to go back to act. I took us off in another direction. (laughs) Happy to bring us back. No problem. Yeah, I think, you know, in small town activism, you know, listening and like finding community can be really impactful, right? Like that step of hearing from community. And we have organizations in Oregon and there's all over the country doing this incredible work of like focusing on community, lifting them up, listening. I was just at a gala last night with Unite Oregon, which is just an incredible organization that's doing direct action work in community with immigrants and people of color here and and, you know, it starts often, you know, the stories they tell starts with listening. Like, what, do, what, do, what does our community need? What do we need? And that allows them to go forward to advocacy in local areas, but also at the state level with much more power because they know their, what their community needs and they're able to bring those stories forward. And that, that engagement and the volunteerism is so much deeper. So that's the first thing, you know, I think often we think of small town activism and you think of like, oh, OK, I'm going to go hold up a sign or. I'm going to, you know, knock on some doors and like, I'm a huge proponent of knocking on doors all day long, but it's easy for all of us collectively to kind of forget about the listening step and the community building step. And that is the work too. And of course, finding your supports are part of that. But I think, I think that can really build up a much stronger movement long-term and bring forward stronger stories as you, as you tell the story of what's happening in your community. When we did the conversation about rural America, one of the things that our guests brought up is about the story that is told about rural America from the media perspective. What do you feel from media perspective, right? What we see on the news, what's on 2020, what you know, sort of the messaging from there. What is gotten right about small towns and what is myth-making? Yeah. My gosh, the... So, so much, you know, there's just been 
books written about it. And coming, you know, I'm like I said at the top of our interview, I'm from a really tiny town in Alaska. So it, the thing that strikes me is that they, I think, sometimes get right is the identity of small towns, right? The the pride that comes with a small town kind of that crosses party lines. Like there's a lot of kind of pride in place and pride in community that sometimes folks will touch on, but other times we kind of skip past it and think, you know, we move on to like, well, that's kind of a, you know, something other, right? It's like a, a small place or a rural place. And now I live in a big city. I'm, you know, five minutes from downtown Portland, which has been in Fox News every week since uh, Trump was in office. So, you know, I'm ha- I, I love living in an urban center, but I think I still, you know, when I go out and we knock on doors and we talk to folks and and run campaigns in really rural areas, I'm always struck by the pride that's there. And I think as progressives, sometimes we or just in general media skip past that and move on. And I also are you familiar with the winning jobs narrative that has been rolled out recently? No. Yeah, it's just brilliant work. There's a, a, a woman strategist leading it who does a lot of Latinx work in the South, too. And she, I, I just was in a presentation about it, so I just wanted to bring it up because it's all about focusing on the outcomes for people. That's at least my big takeaway. And she taught, you know, they did numerous focus groups and polling and all sorts of stuff, and it's available online. And I think for folks running, one of the things, you know, down valley, you're often without resources like polling and focus groups, and you kind of think, where do I get the right messaging to make sure this sticks so I can tell a story that actually resonates? And that's a great place. It's just available online. So if you're talking with folks about economic issues, you're talking to them about working issues or folks dealing with, you know, issues that are around working people. It's a great resource. And she really talks about, you know, centering and leading with working people and making them the heroes so they can hear that they're the priority and positioning government in a supporting role. So we kind of center personal agency, if you will. And and finally, you know, I think just the final note about that is that people want government and age at their, you know, government entities and politicians to support them, not do things for them. So when I talk about pride and like identity, there's a lot of pride in contribution to the community. There's a lot of pride in work. And, you know, an example is the child tax credit. You know, we on the national stage talk about um, anti-poverty, right? Or an example is like we cut child poverty in half. But the flip way to say that, that she focuses on in her some of her focus groups is you could instead say supporting working people. And um, one of the focus group lines was allow people to afford childcare so they can work and take care of their families. And a lot of times, right, even in local activism, we're talking about what we did for you. We're here to help you. We, the government, the, the politician, the person, right? But like when you're focused on outcomes, like it's not about you, the politician or the campaign. It's about the people. It's, it reminds me of that. You know, it's, it's about the people it, it impacts and the pride that they feel and how you lift them up. And always making it about the community is going to always resonate with you more. I have that, you think the song ain't about you, don't you, song stuck in my Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, how to lose a guy in 10 days from 20 years ago. But that's, you know, that's what I think of is like centering outcomes and talking about what it gets done for people. Yeah. And, and it's important distinction to make, even as you're, you are able to bring more people, no matter their political party, right? Because I feel like if you focus on what we've done, you then trigger people to run to their respective corners, right? And to support, how to support, you know, this. But if you say, similar to, and I'm sure you've been in focus groups, so there, the difference of if you tell people, 
you know, to allow people to afford childcare or healthcare so that they can do that. So it's like, oh yeah, I agree with that. <laughs> you know, like, like you, it's hard to get people to not agree with things when you focus on the outcomes, as you mentioned, like people will agree with that. It's just like, you know, don't you agree that everybody should, you know, eat three, you know, children should be able to eat so that they can grow? Well, yeah, of course. Nobody would get children eating. I hope not. Yes, right. Like you're focusing on what it does for them too. And like everybody wants their kid to be able to eat three square meals a day and not struggle to put food on the table. And so it like it hits home for people in a way that like that's something I can stand behind that you you get what I'm dealing with here. Yeah, and Roman struggles are real right now, right? At all sorts of places around the country. Like people are really um there's a lot of economic stress. And so, you know, finding a way to to speak to that. And then, you know, I was just thinking about the the impact of direct action, like knocking on doors, but also looking for ways to kind of make an impact in in moments. What one of the things we we did here is we we're working on a, a bill focus on securing overtime protections for farm workers, which actually is exempted. A lot of around the country are still exempted. Farm workers are exempted from receiving overtime, which I think is, is well, I don't think, I know it's part of a racist, racist exclusion that started a long, long time ago. And we passed a, a bill here in Oregon to, to stop that and ensure that they're, you know, entitled to the same overtime pay. And during that campaign, you know, we'd been lobbying and knocking doors and organizing and all the things, right? We had the storytelling but like right in the midst of when it really mattered, we got a, a spotlight and shown Cisse Puede on the Capitol building and took pictures and sent it to press. And it would like that just like little direct action. Right. We weren't like tying ourselves to anything in that moment. You know, you think direct action. But sometimes those moments can make a big difference when you're when you're doing local work. Yeah. So be, because of that, and mentioning those examples of focusing on the outcomes. You know, one thing that is often said about those who are on the left, primarily Democratic candidates or progressive candidates, I hear this every election cycle, whether it's a national election, a state election, a global election, yeah. tends to just have a messaging problem. You know, they're like, we always have a messaging problem. I feel like that's the message for somebody, like somebody has a message that tends to have a messaging problem like, all the time. And I was like, every election cycle, we got a message problem. Yeah, I yeah. feel that way, obviously, when it um, when it pertains to issues that are primarily black issues or issues relating to communities of color. And it goes back to that point that you said at the top of who is deciding the messaging and who is deciding who the messengers are and all of that stuff. Right. So that is all connected. And I've been part of campaigns before. It's just like, you random white dude from Kentucky consultant who has never been anywhere and engaged on any of these issues cannot be the consultant telling black people how to enjoy, but you just can't unless it is informed by the voices. In the, and I'm not saying you can't, you know, ever. I'm saying that you need more information and more voices and more people and more empowered people to help develop that message. But you can't come up with it by yourself in your consultant office in Montana. Like, you can't, like, you can't do it. It's a You can't have the experience and and it's hard to do it. And it's fine to say that, right? It is fine to say, I do not have 
the experience, mm-hmm. the, the context of history, the thing, whatever. And so I have to bring people to the table that do in order for us to develop a message that would resonate for us to win. And I think that's what, you know, I've seen it in the room, right? Like, you know, random white guy immediately goes red and tells me why I've been doing communication for 25 years and I don't have to come from the community development. Right? <laughs> Quite often, it was like, we're not saying that you're not a professional. We're not saying that you yeah. have, what we're saying is that you do not have all of the information necessary to develop a message that would resonate with a community that you have no connection, history, or context to that would actually move them to actually go where it is we want them to go. And so if you have a plan of mm-hmm. how you're going to bring those things together so mm-hmm. that we can develop a message to do that, then let, let, let's put it together. But you can't tell me this is the plan, go out and do it, and you ain't got no, you know, no influence, no impact, no nothing that people would be impacted by can't believe yes i just did oh i mean i so i we could like talk for a couple hours i think about this i'm just just i feel the same way that you do it's like and and people say messaging and i think they're saying that because well a couple thoughts it's struck the problems are structural with the democrat with all of us with this system and i've been reminding people that like you know, the systems I've run here that have elected governors and House members and Senate members and big progressive majorities, they were designed 30, sometimes 100 years ago. They started many, many years ago. And a lot of the current modern systems we're setting, we were using in democratic politics actually got set up in the early 2000s, right? And so it's okay for us 23 years later to say that system doesn't actually serve us. The people at this table, it doesn't serve us anymore. And saying, like, we need different supports. We need different work. We need different outcomes. You know, just really looking at the system. And it's exciting to see a lot of community-led groups starting to talk about the system. You know, they folks have been talking about the systems for a long time. But when you're finally diving into, like, what is a campaign structure that actually that looks like that actually elects women, actually elects people of color? Like, how does that support people differently? How does it lift them up um, differently? I think that's really exciting. And, yeah, I... I I was just chatting with somebody who, you know, the, these consultants, we all, consultants make money at the end, right? You make money in those final month and a half of work where you've got media flying every which way and you have millions of dollars moving around. And in my experience on campaigns, and I've run a lot of them now, you win campaigns in like the early months. Like if you have a November election, you start in like February, knocking on doors, building community, talking, engaging. And that is all discounted by the fact that our money in politics starts in the last period. And so if you had folks who were valuing the whole process, the whole community engaged in some way or bought in and the whole community beyond you and I sitting at the table and waving our hands and saying, hey, this is, there's more to this story than, you know, this final little piece. Then we might be having different conversations and having different people at the table. But as it is right now, I think, I, yeah, I, I tend to think our problem is structural, not messaging. We'll be right back with more of Sunday Civics. How can it be that you love the most unlovable part of me? Of me. How could you see? Your life was the only gift I left for me. To be free. It's amazing. 
Oh, what a happy Sunday. It's your host and civics teacher, Eljoy Williams. And we have been talking to Kathleen Stewart, who is a strategist and the founder and CEO of the Stewart Collective based out of Portland, Oregon. And we've been talking about small town activism, communications, and telling a political story. So, you know, Kathleen, those who are listening, not everybody who's listening is going to run a campaign, you know, sort of be a tactician on a campaign, but they may want to use a powerful story to move their elected official to address an issue locally. They may want to use a, you know, a powerful story to move the governor on budget items, right? Like, let's switch this from you know, your client being the elected and trying to get somebody elected or, you know, thing like that and switch this now to the constituent focus, Mm -hmm. right? Where are trying to bring attention to or engage in an issue that may not be part of a large jobs, justice campaign, national, whatever. It's just, we just trying to get the trash picked up on a regular... (laughs) Demonstrate here, like how how does so, someone like that, right? Like who are sort of that small town, small activism piece? Okay. How do they use the power of storytelling for those small civic actions? Yeah, what a what a great question! I love that you're drilling it down like this. I think that storytelling, in order to be able to tell your story in a way that's heard, it all starts with relationships. So. I've seen, you know, we've all seen like mountains moved by one activist who decides like, I want, I, our community needs our trash picked up and this is a mess and I'm, I'm not stopping until it's fixed. And the most successful ones are the ones who are like, in my experience and, you know, the ones like going and, and sitting down in front of the office of the people who are making decisions and like introducing themselves and saying, Hey, this is my problem. And I'll, I'll be back next week. Like I'm, I'm going to keep showing up. And the second one is, again, talking about impact, right? You know, when you're talking about story, you're talking about storytelling, you're talking about how things, you know, how things are happening in the community. Talking about impact is going to be, you know, how it's impacting the community, how it's impacting you and finding other examples and stories. An example here, right here locally in, in Portland, our Portland Association of Teachers, our teachers union here is negotiating a contract. Um, they've been without a contract for three years. And so they're looking, you know, to take local action to say, hey, we want a contract, we want fair pay, and we want some other protections. But one of the things that they're asking for are heat controls in the classroom. So you could talk about heat controls all day long, right? But the way to flip that, to talk about storytelling, to illustrate my example of impact, is that the impact on students is that our classrooms don't have air conditioning like our neighboring areas do. And these classrooms climb beyond 90 degrees in the afternoons, especially in areas in eastern East Portland, in North Portland, where there's not as much tree cover and there's no air conditioning. And these buildings were built 100 years ago. So the impact is that students' um, outcomes are affected and their health is affected. And it's, you know, it's an equity issue in our in our city. And so I think talking about, you know, lifting up the community that's impacted by this, but also folks who can speak to that, right? Doctors, parents, kids, and really focusing on the, the outcome and then making sure that you're raising it for the people who are decision makers and, and knowing that, you know, teachers, you know, for it in this example, teachers are here and they want to make sure that this is protected for kids. Yeah. 
Well, Kathleen, thank you so very much for making time for us this morning. Eldra, you're brilliant. Thank you for your time and for your leadership on this podcast. And I'm really excited to have talked to you today. Thanks to all of you for making it to class this morning. And thanks to Kathleen Stewart for stopping by. I'll be back next week with more information, lessons to fuel our collective civic journey. Until then, keep educating yourself, engaging and empowering not just yourself, but those around you. Tell an interesting, compelling story. Together, let's create ways of civic action that transform our communities. See you back here next Sunday. (laughs) 